Hello everybody and welcome to episode 4 of the Adam Muller Bookman podcast. I'm John Coughlin, joined by my friend Al Bond, and today we are continuing with Ian Wright's Life in Football. Here we go. Did you know his background was Caribbean? No, I don't think I did. I didn't realize he was like a first generation um, uh, English guy as well. Like his mother, like was he born in Jamaica or was he born in England? Sorry, I can't even remember. No, he was born in he was born in he was born in Woolwich, okay. but Woolwich Arsenal. So it all ties in. So sorry, but, yeah, yeah. So his his mother came over and he was born in England. His mother came from Jamaica. He he doesn't name his stepfather. I think in the book, and no. his. And his father is more or less a non-entity in, in, in the book. I think he left when he was two. So yeah. so the details there are, are, are sparing, although his stepfather was Jamaican. Um, but yeah, uh, his mother came when and left one kid in Jamaica who came later. And he describes him as being really Jamaican, whereas him and his other brother, Morris, who's also older than him, as being English. You know, well, they're born in England. Well, Ian was certainly born in England. Yeah, and they all had to share a bed, which sounds very uncomfortable. Where they're all, they're all jabbing him every time he moved, like because he was the little one. He moved over to Morris, whack. He moved over to his big brother, whack. Yeah, and just an unhappy home life. Um, his stepfather being the word, the word he used for his home life was horrible, and his stepfather was didn't work. He was gambling, smoking weed all day and was abusive, I think, physically and obviously pretty horrible in terms of verbal and emotional abuse. He 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 paints a pretty horrible picture of his father his stepfather having match of the day on and not allowing him and Morris watch it, but allowing them hear it, which is just weird, cruel treatment, isn't it? Sociopathic. Angling the television away. I mean that that's right. I mean that's it's it I just can't get my head around that. I mean people get angry at stuff I mean maybe he was an asshole but just withholding this pleasure he, he could give these kids it costs him nothing. Yeah, it just sounds like an absolutely abysmal sort of fella. Yeah. And uh who then only got worse when his mother gave birth to Dion by his stepfather, Dion being his sister who he does not have a kind word for, not at all. No. So, yeah, he says essentially that the, fa- the, the stepfather would you know, always take this, like just treated him very differently, treated him very diff- differently than his own biological child. And she kind of, from a very young age, took advantage of that and would use every opportunity to kind of get Ian in trouble. And it sounds like he lived in like abject terror of his of his stepfather and it's yeah again when you think about right and how he comes across as this incredibly warm humble quite lovely man that he came from this just dreadful um situation is really is really quite incredible well he talks about when he took on um uh, Sean Wright, uh, Sean Wright Phillips is his son. And Sean Wright Phillips is not biologically his son. And Bradley Wright Phillips is biologically his son. 
Yeah. But as he says, he never treated them differently. Never, never, never. Even though his whole family would be like, why are you giving Sean the same as you're giving Bradley? He just rose above it, right? He wasn't, he wasn't drugged down by it. He was just, he just did the right thing. Again, I've said that by accident again, but yeah, he, he, he took the, he took how he felt and rather than replicating it so often it can happen, he chose never to be like that and chose Sean as a, uh, yeah, treated Sean as his son. Again, he just sounds like a, a decent fellow, a really decent fellow. Yeah. And like, this is a, this is a guy who left school when he was 14, you know, um, he's, you know, this incredible, as you say, maturity and the capacity, you know, I think those kind of patterns of not, I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, I guess, ultimately, but I believe the patterns like that do repeat often. And not in the case of Ian, he was able to flip it on its head and, and, and use it as a, as a way, as a kind of an inspiration to be a decent, a decent man. Um, his mother, who he continued to be great to, and who he said went one match in his career, um, and she would get drunk and tell him that, like when he was a child, a small child, that she should have had an abortion or termination was the term she used. It's like, what kind of a, what kind of a upbringing? The poor fellow, dreadful stuff. Yeah, that's it. No encouragement at all. Many a call, few had chosen. She told him all the time as a kid about being a footballer, so he never really believed it. Yeah, and then- it sounds. And then, and what did he first thing he did when he turned a professional? Bought her a house. First thing he did. God bless you, righty. God bless you, righty. He did like Morris. That's one thing to know. He had a lot of time for Morris. Yeah, there is something I wanted to say about that. Because, again, it's a very generous take. It's like uh, Morris always told him, you're not good enough, you'll never make it. You're not good enough, you'll never make it. And then he did make it. And he played, I think he scored a hat trick for whoever it was. And he went and told Morris, ah, you're teasing maybe make it and Morris loved that I bet he did again a very generous interpretation <laughs> of a fact you'll never make it you'll never make it ah you telling me I'll never make it spurred me on thank you son it's a very generous interpretation which yeah. Ian Wright gives Morris yeah I think it must be tough for an older sibling who's obsessed with football to to see their younger annoying brother realise their dream yeah that must be that must be rough. That must be hard to take. Um, but he did like Morris, and Morris um seems to have been his his only ally, really, maybe growing up. But the thing about he did, to, he did seem to have a lot of cousins and aunts who he would spend yeah. time with, though, right? There was that. There's an extended family which I think he could rely on. Um, he said that he just spent so much time away from home because he just didn't want to be there, and what and that's when he was playing football. You know, that's what he did all the time. Played football. He said that other kids on the estate had bicycles, but his mother and stepfather had no money to buy bicycles. So him and one other kid used to just stick around playing football, which is all very sad stuff. Um, and I suppose, I guess, like I said, Morris was his only, only ally, but I guess he found a lot of solace in football, which is a nice thing in a way. Morris was really good to me, and I'll look after him until the day he dies. All righty. <laughs> all righty, lad. We'll be signing up for the Ian Wright fan club. Uh, yeah, just 
yeah, he's always so generous. He's generous to his mother. It's, you know, the way that she says, you know, it must have been hard for her coming over here and she felt sorry for herself. That made it, but always very, very generous. I saw yeah. a quick uh, reference here. There's a, he's hanging out with his friends. The three of us were out of it and we went to see Scarface. I don't know if it was because of the state I was in, but it left a profound impression on me and all I could think about was how it ended for Tony Montana. I came away thinking from that, hang on a minute, this guy's the baddest guy I've ever seen as a character in fiction and he still didn't make it. What chance have I got if I want to go down that road? Find the film Scarface is some sort of morality lesson. It's just wonderful. I just that's <laughs> it's certainly not what I took from that movie. It's not what I took from it. It's like going, oh no, no, make mm, makes me think. Makes me think. Maybe I won't be a Cuban drug lord in Miami. Because maybe that's it's not gonna end out well. I just thought that was lots of fun. Like he, he watched Scarface and he thought the cautionary Scarface. This is a lesson for me. <laughs> the cautionary tale of Tony Montana. <laughs> He learned something from it, so good for him. Good yeah. for him. I also like how he said he was drinking lager and lime, and he just thought he was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, man, lovely <laughs> lager and lime makes me thirsty. <laughs> so okay, okay. As a kid, he didn't love school. He was good at French because he liked mimicking people. He said in school he had some nice role models, um, and I think significantly for right to have father figures. He talks about this a couple of times in the book. Um, and I think it's documented widely that he had a good relationship with one teacher in particular. Mr. Pigden, Mr. Pigden. Folks, if you're listening to this and you've never seen Ian Wright's uh, reunion with Mr. Pigden, it is, I'm tearing up thinking about it. It's the most lovely thing you could ever watch in your life. So this Mr. Pigden really took an interest in it, young Ian built him up, told him he could be something. He was the first guy that ever really gave him that father figure. Anyway, for some reason, they were reunited, and Ian Wright didn't even know that Mr. Pigden was still alive. And he's sitting there in the video. He's sitting in a football ground somewhere, and there's this voice behind him like, all right, Ian, all right, Ian. <laughs> and he's around, he's like, Mr. Pigden, <laughs> I thought you was dead. Mr. Peter's like, thought I was dead. He's, that's what he says. I guess what he said. He thought I was dead. But you can see Righty. He whips off his cap. He he's wearing his, his uh, was it newsboy cap, but he always wears it. He whips it off because it's the respect he shows for Mr. Pigton. And Mr. Pigton by this time is just an old, old London geezer. But it is a beautiful video. Absolutely beautiful. And it's hard as well. I watched, you know, it, I watched it the other day too, funny enough. Um, not a dry eye in the house yeah it's very sweet it's very sweet i thought you were dead that is pretty funny isn't it i think i that's, thought you was dead that's what all he, thought older, I was dead, he says that's what all older people want to hear so what i thought was really fascinating about this book actually and this was you know this whole um afro-caribbean side of london and just this kind of like parallel world that was going on like and then I look, you know, Viv, Viv Anderson played for England in 1978. So, and then he describes all these amazing players playing in these like uh, all black Sunday league teams. And he says when he went to play for Arsenal or whatever, he could have named, or when he went, went to Palace, there was like 15 lads he knew from, from, from over the years he used to play in this all black competition who were better than any of the guys he saw there. And just from a sporting 
from sporting point of view, but also the stuff he talks about the whole about the whole milieu of Broccoli, where he's from, and Peckham and and Brixton and Camberwell. It was I thought all that stuff was really, really, really interesting. Yeah, me too. And again, as I say, you know, as an Englishman, you know, not that much younger, but it was a world I know knew nothing about, just nothing about. Yeah. He talked about this uh, tournament, the Super Malt Cup, right, which was yeah. a collection of yeah. Uh, black teams who join play and it just sounds like an incredible event it just sounds wonderful it just sounds wonderful and there's a story that he turned up for his team and he was absolutely brilliant the next week he was out and about he was wearing a big gold chain and uh, he calls it being taxed but these lads were trying to steal it from him they had their hands round and then there's just this figure gone leave him alone my little football friend leave him alone Yes. It's just like how he got that respect through football, how people through London knew who he was because he was so good at football. It's a great little story. Yeah, he says it's kind of the first time that he realised that people were taking note of him, right? This guy was just some random Caribbean guy, I guess, who had who who told him then that he'd been watching him in that Super Bowl. That is a nice story. next bit in my notes is his life of crime oh yeah absolutely so this was very unfortunate as he says ian he had a car but he never had any tax or insurance and he would go around driving and accumulating uh, different driving fines and then at one point he had the money and he thought okay well I'll, I'll go and pay these fines so he just turned up to the police station say hey i'm here to pay fines where he was arrested for non-payment of, uh, of driving fines and put in prison. And he wasn't for very long, a couple of weeks, right? A couple of weeks in Chels Chelmsford Prison. I say a couple of weeks in prison. And as I say, couple, yeah, exactly, a couple <laughs> of weeks. Yeah, I'll, I'll just, just a couple of weeks, I'll be right. I'll be fine. Let's do some push-ups. But um, yeah, and, that, and that's it. He kind of walked into it. But again, this just reaffirmed to him that this was somewhere he was never going to end up. Yeah, and but he, he came pretty close times, right? I mean, he was running for his uh, just just through association with people, but as if that would help him. Yeah, and he had a kind of a come to come to Jesus moment, I think, in a, in a sporting sense, in in the prison, realized. And again, this is he had left school when he was fourteen, and by the time he was fifteen, he was like a full time. He was doing full time labor on construction sites, so, you know, I guess of all those guys playing in that super malt and these 15 kids that he talked about who were who were amazing and better than anyone he saw at palace i guess maybe some of them did end up working and like in jobs like that but luckily for ina went in a, in a different direction but certainly at that point in his life he's got i suppose he's been overlooked all throughout his youth and he's kind of given up but it's in prison that he decides to that he's gonna He's going to try again. Yeah. And don't you think this is all, if he'd had like a, a strong role model there, a dad or someone, he wouldn't have been overlooked all those times. He always had to be his own advocate. And mm. I think someone else there, obviously his talent was, was apparent for all to see. And if he just had someone there pushing him through, talking to the right people, as he said, Ian, he never knew what to do or what to say to people. He was unsure when he was first mm -hmm. turned semi-professionally didn't know who to ask for the money he was shy yeah which seems difficult to believe he said that when he was at palace and he wanted he wanted to stay after training like he he, he asked if he could use the balls you know you know he's as you say he's, 
he's a sweet guy. And your man's like, well, yes, you can use the balls. <laughs> and he said that was a huge moment, right? He has 30 balls all to himself and he could just practice and practice and practice. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that must have been a big moment. You, you've one ball, you kick it, you've got to chase it. Now he had 30 and he could get the youth team involved, yeah. they could cross and stuff. Yeah, he was a, he was a super professional, even though he didn't know he was being a super professional, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and you think that maybe, you know, it's also a product of time and place. Um, uh, like South London, I think, and the Paris suburbs are the two biggest um, hothouses you know, for, for young football talent, like real top-level footballers. So this world that he talks about with this super malt was just, I guess, overlooked largely. Obviously, there were, there were like people like the Wallace brothers were, were from around that part of the world, I think, and they got spotted. So there was some that were getting picked up, but maybe he was, if he was a little bit earlier, he wouldn't have been seen at all. And maybe if he was a bit later, he would have been seen quicker. Like people like Ferdinand, Rio Ferdinand and uh, Anton, they were there from, they're from Peckham, right? They're from around that part of the world as well. So maybe. Oh, that's right. But it's only, it's only in the last 10 years though, that South London has really been exploited for these yeah. players now, your Bukayo Sakas and the like. I mean, now yeah. it really is. It's 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 the envy of all of Europe, right? I believe. Yeah. So as you say, he he nearly got arrested a couple of times where he was kind of running around with fellas who were up to no good, and he kind of was being dragged into you know some some bad groups at times. But like he says at one point that you know he was afraid of this fella, he was afraid of that fella, and then he he came to realize that people were just playing a role, and that was how they would try and get respect you know by being tough guys and all the rest of it and it's like there is an incredible i don't know if it's humility or whatever but he's very kind to people and he says like people who were, he was terrified of later on he's like you know they were just doing what was all they could do yeah, it's a it's a front in a tough world and that's it and to to get by in that world you know again from my little middle class perspective yeah it's a, a world that i i know nothing about did you notice any difference in how he referred to the his unrequited love Jacqueline Graham and his first long-term partner Sharon and the clue is in how he just described them no go ahead Johnny <laughs> well he talks about Jacqueline Graham firstly he gives her full name nice. <laughs> she's the most beautiful girl I ever saw la 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 and he was trying to get with this girl for a long time and she was too polite to tell him no and she was kind of leading him along and then some of his buddies eventually got her to tell him that she wasn't interested and then he's like and then i met Sharon, and we sat down settled down you know it's like it just it's like whoa um Sharon and he was happy with that because he didn't have to ask any more girls out so <laughs> <Yeah>. lucky him <laughs> that was funny and Sharon being the mother of 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 sean and then the mother of bradley as well but um yeah coming out of prison and he he got picked up by palace he got a he said it was it was a three-month contract he was spotted and he says that it was a blessing that it was kind of short term because he 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 just kind of realized that he wanted to just enjoy it for the period that he was there and it made him work really really hard and you know obviously things things went very well for him there and he as well as being a club legend at Arsenal I think he's a club legend at Palace but I think more broadly speaking I read a little bit about you know ha having read that stuff about um 
about South London. I think he's quite an iconic figure in South London, just Afro-Caribbean football circles, generally speaking. Yeah, I'd say so. You mentioned Rowcastle earlier. Rowcastle kind of maybe came to fame beforehand, uh, but Wright's um, profile, I guess, ultimately exceeded his buddy, Rocky Rowcastle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was super famous. Yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, I remember him from being at Palace, and this was when I was a young kid, but the right and bright front line, they were devastating, and everybody knew that. I like the way he talks about Mark Bright. Mark Bright was obviously a bit of a square. Yep. But again, <laughs> he says it, but he says it with such warmth and admiration, right? That's yeah. it. It's like Brighty would be dancing. He's sort of like swaying and nodding, and they'd be putting on all their super moves and the thing. But I'm looking forward to getting through to the music part because that's yeah. where writing really comes alive. Just on the on the palace stuff, you know, when suddenly he finds himself on a club trip to Qatar, he doesn't know that he's going to be selected because I guess he's still a new player and he's he's named on 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 the on the list and somebody mentions it in a way to show that they're surprised that right is mentioned, but he had never. He had no passport. He'd never been on a plane. He'd never been in a hotel. It's, uh, no, God bless him. Yeah. Uh, I was also telling him he managed to turn up and get a passport in one fucking day. Yeah, <laughs> good yeah. luck. Good luck nowadays. Good luck with that. And then he, there was another story where he was smoking weed at the time. And um, the drug the drug tester showed up. And, and he was still on this short-term contract. And the drug test, he didn't know that this was even a thing. And the drug testers are going around after the after the match and they're calling the names and it's um mark bright like right wore eight later on but i, I think he was wearing 10 so it's like number nine mark bright number 11 whoever it was and they just somehow skip right oh that's lovely isn't it i know that's it i had butterflies in my tummy for him right there like yeah <laughs> well, i'm gonna come crashing down over that one silly little thing yeah and he never smoked another joint again never ever to this day so yeah, okay, let's talk about the let I like that whole scene that he describes about well first there's two sides to it, isn't there? Like there's the kind of the fairly raw scenes that he talks about about the kind of music clubs around where he's from and then it gets a lot more bougie uh when he goes to uh hang around with the players in uh, Kensington. Well that's a, it's it's a it's a very it's a really interesting chapter. It's regrettably called Uptown Funk, which dates it horribly. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, at the time. But, yeah, it was absolutely magic, the music. And I, I was just thinking to myself, oh, you know, I couldn't love Ian Wright more. Oh, you love Prince? Yeah, you do, lad. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, so he talks about going to the the dance and blues club, the Rastafarian clubs, but he got very, they were very, everyone was very vexed, as he writes. And it was a scene that he wasn't really into because that's the thing with writing on the pitch. Very, very aggressive, but in his day-to-day, -day, he tries to avoid that at all costs. He started getting into the music such as, like, Parliament, Funkadelic, Light of the World. And that, to his brothers, was Banner music, which was short for Bannercheck, a 1970s TV detective. But basically, this was like being called an Oreo cookie, like brown on the outside, white on the inside. But I just think it's very interesting with a in that time in London, listening to like Parliament and Funkadelic was considered to be very, very white. And he should have been listening to the reggae music from his back home. 
Yeah, and like I suppose he talks about how you know these kind of clubs that they would hang around in 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 Peckham and places like this. I guess were there, you know, I guess they were rough, but they were their own thing, I suppose, ultimately, and that was kind of um what made it so special. And he said like, but in some like he said he, there was one that he used to go to that was all. Caribbean people, but it was out the back of a white pub. <laughs> all these old white dudes in the front of the pub. All these old racist white dudes. I think he kind of, if he doesn't say explicitly, he certainly implies as much. But then, then out the back, this is what's going on. But yeah, I think he's um he starts to get worried that he's going to be dragged down by this scene a bit. But then again, in 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 true righty fashion, he starts saying, "But it was the people there." Who were encouraging me to, you know, you got to be homing. You've got a game in the morning, you know. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like the whole community was looking out for him at this point. It's nice if that is how it was. That's a pretty nice picture. And then he's so this kind of coincides with when he's at Palace with with uh, other, I guess, mostly uh, black London. Londoners, but like I said, Bright is from from the north, and um, and I guess this is he kind of transitions from being around broccoli because he said it was a bit awkward because if you bought people drinks, they'd call you flash, and if you didn't, they'd call you tight essentially. And then he didn't like the guff that he was getting, so he just kind of drifted away a bit and started hanging around around uh, in Kensington a bit more in the clubs where like George Michael was going. Yeah, that's it. He took a step up real quick, didn't he? Like, before you knew it. Yeah. I see he also hung around with, like, he'd go out with a core of us who used to rave together. Tony Finnegan, Andy Gray. I wonder which Andy Gray that is. I didn't look it up. I mean, there's, there's about three Andy Grays. No, Mitchell no. Thomas, Mark Bright. Uh, it's not the, it's obviously not the Scottish Andy Gray because he does talk about him being, um, him being a, a stylish black man. So it's not that Andy Gray. No, and there was an Andy Gray subsequently who played, who which is also not that Andy Gray. There's a few Andy Grays out there, I think. Okay, Fifty Shades of Andy Gray. Lovely. Mm. Um. Yeah. Like so, he talks. I did listen to some of the songs. I the names were good. There's like Bad Bobby Glover. I like that. Yeah. Uh, but I would describe that music as being like, kind of slow kind of slowed down and quite sentimental but it slowed down that certain kind of punk elements of it, but slowed down and pretty sentimental it, it wasn't really for me fair enough but and what disappointed me anytime i hear people talking about music and they're like i love music and all the rest of it it's like but now music has to mean more to me and if i had to pick two songs now do you know yeah, what now this this is yeah yeah, well, obviously, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, but it's kind of broke my heart a little bit, to be honest. Like, all these great music. Oh, you love Prince. Like, you always put Prince on. Your two favourite songs are fucking what? Tell us what they are, Johnny. Uh, what a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. I mean, okay, um, I guess. And, of course, Imagine by John Lennon. Mm, that's really... Imagine there's a world where that song hadn't been fucking written. That'd have been a better world. Like, oh, yeah. Imagine. I mean, come on, son. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a real that was a real heartbreaker. We named all this great stuff. I'm like, they're your two favorite songs. Those two. 
come on, lad. I don't even know if I believe that, to be honest. I think he's just trying to put out this world of peace and love, like. Later on, like he talked about, like driving to Arsenal games, and he'd uh, he'd have a uh, uh, fire starter clearing out of the clearing out of the uh, radio. That's more like it. I imagine. Yeah, that's quite fun, isn't it? Like again, dates it beautifully. Like uh, yeah, imagine him pumping that out. It was with his windows rolled down as he turned up to the Arsenal stadium. You'd just be down your knees, loving him. Like there yeah. goes Righty, our boy. Yeah, yeah. Is or that... can we just talk a little bit about? His fashion at the time. People used to laugh at him, like saying he, he looked like a an old time sticksman, one of those ruffian guys getting blues dances. He was wearing Farrah slacks. I remember Farrah slacks in burgundy, multicolored ballet shoes, probably with a little chain across them. I like that detail. And I may even have been wearing a suede fronted cardigan. Lovely. You paint a picture, Ian. I can see you like that. Yeah. Did you listen to his song? I'll do the right thing. I've, yeah. I've, I've heard it. Do you know who produced that or maybe wrote that? No. The other pet Okay, Ken Waterman. Chris Lowe? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. It's not terrible. I'm a big fan of the Pet Shop Boys. I believe Chris Lowe has my birthday. He's one of the famous people that does. Him and Tony Adams. It all ties in. Lovely mm-hmm. stuff. Look at that. It, like, there's, that song's not terrible as far as those football you know what they can't uh, they just cannot resist in the videos for those uh, songs is having footballs in the videos <laughs> just bouncing around in the background <laughs> let me tell you Al something that I didn't care much for in this book was all the talk about the TV stuff because I really don't care about that. Right, then. so this is his subsequent to his playing career. Well, in fact, it was it was going along at the same time when he was at West Ham. Well, this is it. Not only do you not care about it, Johnny, but neither did he. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why, yeah. Although, may I just say, on his very first talk show, his guests included... <laughs> Denzel Washington, Will Smith, and fucking Beyonce. I mean, come on, lad. I mean, it is triple A list there. Like, he really got the big stars now, which is 20 years ago. But they were big stars then as well, right? Yeah, and he Imagine gave... a chat show, like, oh, we got Will Smith next week, it's Beyonce, and uh, the week after that, Denzel Washington. That is fucking A list. No wonder Parkinson was so pissed off. Yeah, Lionel Richie as well. But And he gave... Oh, yeah. He handed... Um... He handed Beyonce her first uh, ever platinum record. That's nice, isn't it? It is nice. And apparently she was delighted with it. Yeah, but um, he, uh, yeah, I enjoyed that stuff about Parkinson. So Parkinson got really ratty about it and was like essentially having a go at Wright because Wright, you know, he's not, I guess he wasn't. Not a journalist. No, I mean, I I, I read the piece and it was very, very grumpy. It was very bad tempered. And I think spoke of a different age, frankly, where. People stayed more in their box, stayed more in their lane. He he did not like other people trying to take his. Yeah, I mean, I said I've I've only ever heard nice things about Michael Parkinson, but that does not reflect very well on him. Yeah, and this is what Wright ultimately didn't like about uh, television was it was just really fickle, and uh, that show was doing really well. I liked so uh, Parkinson uh, writes this thing attacking rights show and then uh, Trevor McDonald calls him up and is like 
Thought you right about Parkinson. If they don't like it, it's their fucking problem. And there's right shocked by Trevor McDonald uh, cursing. That was quite a nice little detail. But then, yeah, it was fickle and ITV. And I guess this really dates the show. Started putting the news in the middle of the show. <laughs> and then that was the end of it, really. It kind of lost momentum. Right bounces around in all of these uh, other TV shows. And they cannot resist you putting a pun in every single thing that he ever did on television. Right here, right now. Um, right around the world. The right ticket. Friday night's all right. It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> Yeah, they never make reference to Ian. Ian. <laughs> I wanted to say this or podcast. It never even occurred to me until I read this book. And there was a bit where I think George Graham's going, Ian, you need to do this. And Ian, go over there. And it's like, who the fuck is Ian? Yeah, he's... Oh, Ian Wright's called Ian. Like, it never occurred to me until I read the book that Ian Wright's first name is Ian. He's the least, Ian. Li he's the least likely it, Ian, isn't he? He doesn't look like an Ian to me, son. He does not look like an Ian. No. And Ian looks like an old, I don't know, someone down the pub in a provincial county. Oh, what's he and having? Oh, he's a bit uh, He's drunk. You know what I thought must be so tiresome? He said that, you know, Will Smith was on the show and afterwards we had a great conversation in our dressing room about being the best we can be and inspiring people. It's like, whoa. Yeah. I, well, we, we often talk about that, don't we, Johnny? We often talk about it. How to inspire people and how to be the best thing. Sitting down and just sitting down and having a chat about it, doing the best you can be at. Um, and then he ended up live from Studio Five with the embarrassingly poor Kate Walsh. And <laughs> did you look up who Kate Walsh was? Did you? Did you know? Was it like? No, no idea. No, I mean, I missed all of this. I missed. I, I don't remember any of it to be honest. I remember him being on the Anton Deck show, but that's it. Kate Walsh was, like all bad things in this world, a, uh, an apprentice contestant. Is that right? Oh, okay. I've, I, I, I just, yeah, I have no idea. I didn't. I should double check that. I did look it up. But she, she, she got famous from being on a TV show. But as he said, embarrassingly or poor. Yeah. Yeah, but like you said, that even though he liked the likes of Will Smith and these guys, ultimately, you know, they get a call in the afternoon saying, Will needs to go on now like three hours ahead of schedule and Mariah Carey needs her room to be decked out with a particular something. And I think eventually he was like, no, I've never heard anything like that about Mariah Carey. Well, yeah, funny that. Yeah. yeah. He, he just had enough of them. And, and this, I suppose he has a real ax to grind with agents and that kind of goes on a bit, but because like ultimately he had these agents who kept him in, in light entertainment. Light entertainment. And wouldn't let him go back to football, right? They were insistent he don't do any, he doesn't do any football. That's a distance himself from that, which is just frankly weird, isn't it? He's making the money, and I suppose that's where his, where his, his grape comes from, because they were they're just instrumentalizing him towards their own ends. But what he did like is when he started talking about agents in football, and of course this is not a huge surprise that football agents are. You know, money men in it for themselves, scumbags, all the rest of it. But he did give interesting detail, maybe about the extent to which they run football. Mendes, yeah, the Mina Raiola's of the world. Well, absolutely. Players don't even scout players anymore, right? We just say, "What do you got for um, teams?" Don't even scout players. They just ask, "What do you got for us?" Yeah, you can imagine just like idiot chairman thinking they're getting good advice from the likes of Mendes, as he's like, um. 
Yes, I have. You still have Cristiano Ronaldo, if you'd like to take him, you know. Um, so that was interesting. But then also his role as a, yeah, as this iconic uh, black guy from, from South London, how he agents would try and roll him out to speak to aspiring footballers from a similar background. Yeah. So what he says is that how it works is that the size of contracts means that agents will throw loads of money at kids and that they like if they get one in every 10 you know if one of them makes it in every 10 they can really they can really um you know it'll pay one player will pay for them essentially tapping up 10 and he just talks about a fairly yeah i guess a very um cynical and uh cynical world where fellas are just essentially getting them to sign on and then fucking them over in the long run if they, if nothing if nothing happens for them. Yeah, there's nothing new there. Everybody knows that nobody likes football agents. We all know how much money they make. But it was an interesting chapter. Well, what I thought was interesting was how, and he explains that it was a new thing when he was a professional for people to have agents. And he just describes how it just put, really played into people's egos. Oh, call my agent. My agent will deal that, deal with that. How ultimately these guys, this whole industry has insinuated itself into the world just as a result of the, you know, the the, the egos of, of, of footballers. That's, and he says that like old school managers, he mentions Ferguson, um, just hated agents and wouldn't deal with them. Um, but obviously, deal with them they must at this point well you can you get it though right i mean it must be very seductive the fellow going here who is asking all the difficult questions you don't want to ask changing your fucking light bulbs for you i mean i get it right and i I can only assume every player has an agent now i can't imagine there's anyone who represents himself anymore just returning to the issue of race quickly al he was the 16th black player at the play for England and there have now there have been 106 but can you imagine he was the 16th black player to play for England Vardy was like the 17th Leicester player <laughs> to play for England you know imagine just this yeah just generations of fellas who didn't get uh just didn't get looked at as a result of the way things were set up because you know this is quite famous in the US with you know uh different leagues and all the rest of it but it's not something that I had stopped to think about in how it worked in football. Um, but there you go. And he says that for he says that thirty percent of footballers in England when this was written, two thousand and sixteen, were black. Three percent of coaches in boardroom were black. So he asks himself if um, things have gotten better or worse, and he says both dressing rooms are much better better there's they're more diverse and even the the white guys in the dressing rooms are a lot more you know used to being around people of from minority backgrounds so it's much different vibe there but he says it's it's every bit as bad or worse he, he thinks in terms of um you know the control of 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 you know these things like top coaching positions and and the boardroom and all the rest of it and what he says interestingly you know, he had these grapes with his agent, but he regrets not going into coaching and he blames the agent for that. 
because the agents wanted to keep him in late entertainment, but he regrets not going into coaching simply for this reason to have kind of, he would have liked to have, um, you know, set an example, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, in this chapter as well, there is a very uh, uncomplimentary passage with uh, Alex Ferguson, eh? accusing uh, Ian Wright of playing the race card when that is just not the Ian Wright way, is it? It's just not the Ian Wright way. That's so what's remind- cool. Ah, okay, remind me. So, th- what happened? So, it's, there we go. It started in November 1996 during game up at Man United when I went in for the ball. He thought I was a bit late. He grabbed the ball, jumped up and yelled at me, you fucking black bastard. I didn't really see it until I watched football that night. But then a lip reader got involved. And he said to himself, let's see what the PFA do about this. But of course, the PFA under Gordon Taylor did absolutely nothing. The newspapers started to make a big deal about it, uh, calling Schmeichel a racist. And Ince was trying, Paul Ince was trying to broker something in between them. Ferguson got Morris Watkins involved, the solicitor of the FA Premier League advise, uh, Legal Advisory Group. And, for, and he said nothing at all. But because Manchester United wanted to protect Schmeichel, it got festered and it festered and then became the so-called tackle. Mm. Yeah, the papers were loving it. Arsenal, Manchester United, black, white. One journalist even tried to make out the concentration happened because of Schmeichel's Aryan looks. It was a different time. It was a different time. Well, like, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't kind of... Uh, that I don't recall there being that kind of reputation hanging around Schmeichel in recent years, like, as in... He like when you think of how Suarez is is viewed compared to Schmeichel, he seems to have just been uh, absolved, no? Yeah, not completely. Mm. Just uh, listen to his podcast. Uh, I just and one of them was talking about Vinicius and what that guy is going through at the moment, or has been in the last few months. Like just crazy stuff. What's happened to him? In Spain, yeah, well, that, yeah, that is crazy. Everyone yeah, in Brazil thinks Spain's a massive racist country now. Like, so, like, in Brazil think that. Right, <laughs> uh, right, kind of describes how, in the moment that Vinicius, where he's, he's talking about one particular game, Vinicius is coming off, and he says, as somebody who's kind of experienced that, you're surrounded by people and you're just incredibly alone. Um, it was quite um. Yeah, like it must just be like to have thousands of people or however many people are involved in the actual racism, I don't know, but it must be it must be really shocking stuff. Yeah, but Vinicius is fearless, right? I mean, this is why it's so great. He's absolutely fearless and he's got the right of Real Madrid behind him now. I mean, he would just call him out, right? It's like pointing him in the crowd, like <laughs> this guy, that guy. Will he stay in Spain though? Like, um, like you. Where else do you go? England or Saudi Arabia? I mean, just one thing here, and I know this is written six or seven years ago, but he talks about he doesn't have that much money. He has a big tax issue. He's not as rich. He missed the big money football years which is more pertinent than ever with Saudi Arabia crikey 
But I guess he's made a pretty decent living now, right? I mean, he's on TV yeah, it's always, all the time. It's always a bit boo-hoo. Like, uh, some, like, I remember reading Cascarino's book. That was like a, it was like an accountant's book. The book is actually quite good, but half of it is about how much money he, he made and how much he would have been making if he had written that book at the time, if he was playing at the time he wrote the book. It's like, Christ alive, you know? You know, at any time these guys were playing, they were making crazy money compared to what everyone else was making. You know? I mean, certainly in the case of Cascarino, I mean, maybe he wouldn't be at top level. You know what I mean? Maybe Cascarino would have been a very good champion striker in the modern world. Like, But, you know, Cascarino was a hairdresser and then he became a professional footballer. So whatever he was making, he was making more than he was when he was a hairdresser. No, he surely is. And that's right. And that's it. And it's just because, oh, I'm not making half a million a week. Boo. You're quite yeah. right. He, you know, he, 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 talked, he talks about how it's hard to retire and a lot of people struggle with it and he says that anyone would find it difficult to retire when they're 30. I was thinking, I thought your wife would agree with that, Ian. It's like, I think quite a lot of people would be happy to retire in their 30s. So, you know, I don't mean to be unsympathetic or whatever, but when, when football books go in that direction, I have, you know, obviously a lot of them have serious problems. He talked about Adams and all that Adams has done for people with, with like um, addiction issues. So. It's not to be unkind or but unkind, but you know, people in every walk of life deal with, with addiction issues as well. You know? So I, I think well, that's it, absolutely right. It's uh, I have limited sympathy. You know, yeah, but what what of the PFA do more? Who's there to do fucking anything for me? Nobody. Like, yeah, that's it. Most of them will be go through their life. They don't have a yeah. They don't ask the uh, union to come and help them out with all that. But sure, I absolutely agree with you there. What do you reckon now? Are we sticking with um, um, with a uh, skittle vodka, or how many prematurely unveiled one seven nine shirts out of five would you give the Ian Wright book? I would give that four and a half split penises out of five. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was an excellent book. Let's say four, four split penises out of five. Okay. Um, you're it's going... a definite hard recommend. I would recommend anyone read. It's certainly if you have an interest in football. Yeah, I maybe not quite as high as you. Three and a half, maybe. Three and a half split penises. That seems yeah. low. Three, like three, 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 four penises and one split, uh, one split Steve McMahon penis. Um, uh, and the reason being, I would take a few marks off it's like yeah i think that stuff about the television goes on and i think maybe it was uh it was a bit on the long side but there was maybe parts of that book uh there's a depth in that book maybe that you don't get in very many uh football autobiographies certainly the ones that i have have read but i want to be like lakeep and be tough with my marking all right i think you're right okay i think the first two parts of the book four split penises the last third of the book, three split penises. All right, we'll give it a three and three quarter split penises. <laughs> we'll split. We'll split the difference. Yeah, All right, lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. Well, that's um, well, you know, whatever we're recommending the book, I certainly recommend the man. What a tremendous chap that Ian Wright is. A really super fella. Yeah, he just 
it seems like a good buy. We could all learn a little bit from Ian Wright. Lovely yeah, man. A lovely man. But yeah, that's that's the oh by the way, one other person, one other footballer from South London is of course Adamola Luckman, who was raised by Nigerian parents in South London. I read today when I was reading the thing about about yeah Afro Caribbean footballers in South London. But anyway, that's it. We are the Adam oh. Bookman. That's gonna catch on. Mm. Okay, well thank you very much. Thank you, Al. And thank you, Radio Land. Thank you. Good luck. Let your body spin Like there is nothing